Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. The reading today is from Ephesians, the sixth chapter, verses 10 through 24. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and again, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You may be familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. If you're not, it is the story of the hobbit Bilbo Baggins and his journey with the wizard Gandalf and 13 dwarves as they try to take back the dwarves' homes and their treasure from the evil dragon Smog. And at one point in that story, Tolkien is describing the city of Esgaroth. Esgaroth is this city that is on a lake next to the mountain within which the dragon Smog lives. And he's, decide, he's describing how this group of people that lives along a lake, a city mostly made of wood, is able to survive living so close to a dragon. And he makes the comment in the midst of that that it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. That would seem to be like, seem to be sound advice. If you have a dragon in your midst, that should factor into your day to day. And as we get to the end of the letter of Ephesians today, Paul gives us a reminder that we live in the territory of a dragon. And that should not be left out of our calculations. The beginning of the story of scripture, God, his purposes, and his people have had an enemy who desires nothing more than to destroy God's purposes. 
In the Garden of Eden, it is described as a serpent, one who deceives Adam and Eve, convinces them that God cannot be trusted, and in the, as a result of that, all of creation is broken. When we get to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, it is described as a dragon, one waging war against God and his people, using every force at his disposal to undermine the work of God. That dragon is there throughout the story, tempting and deceiving trying to convince God's people to walk away from God's intentions towards a path that might look promising, but ultimately leads to death. We live near a dragon. It does not do to leave that out of our calculations. Over the past few chapters, Paul has been describing the Christian life for us, and time and time again, he has used the imagery of walking to describe what that life is to look like. And we might expect, as we get to the very end of this letter, for that to come up again, for Paul to hammer that image home for us one more time. But instead, he shifts to the imagery of standing. It turns out we've come to the end of our walk, and whether we recognized it or not, this walk was leading us to a battlefield. We've been told to walk this way and not to walk that way, to walk together. And as we have been doing so, we come to realize here at the end of this story that actually we have been walking in formation. We're not a group of travelers who all happen to be wandering down the same path. We are an army that is being led by our king. And now our king is telling us to stand before our enemy. And yet while his imagery, his point remains the same. This is the culmination of all we've heard throughout this letter. That even though we had sinned, we had rebelled against God, we had walked away from his purposes for us, and his good creation in the process, he has been at work through Jesus to set things right. And that work will one day culminate in God making all things new. And so as we look forward to that day, we live as God's people together in unity at peace with God and with one another, we imitate Jesus so that our world can see the life that God desires for them. We love one another because of God's love for us. We serve one another because Jesus came to this earth as a servant. Peace and reconciliation with one another because there will come a day when all creation will be at peace and reconciled. And yet we still live near a dragon. And it will not do to leave that out of our calculations. We have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. Therefore, if we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul told us to do in chapter 4, we have to stand. But when we arrive on this battlefield, we might be surprised at who the opponent is. We live in a culture that's pretty comfortable with the idea of war as a metaphor. Beyond the sad reality of war, in the headlines, seemingly every time you look at them... We have a culture that seems to love a fight. Arguing over social media seems to be bordering on a national pastime at this point. Every single issue seems to get turned into a battle. So a prolonged metaphor like this calling us to take up arms against an enemy might sound right at home in a culture that loves name-calling and backbiting and everything else that comes with it. There might be all sorts of groups and ideologies interested in taking on language like this for their cause to stand against whoever our enemies are this week. And yet Paul says something different. Because this battlefield is not a cable news show. This battlefield is not your Facebook feed. This battlefield, Paul says in 6, is a real battle. But while we battle, we do not fight against flesh and blood. 
This battle is fought, fought in the material world against a real enemy. It is flesh and blood. Our enemy is not the Democrats. Our enemy is not the Republicans. Our enemy is not the people who don't look like us. Our enemy is not the people who don't think like us. Our enemy is not the people in the next town over, the neighborhood over. Our enemy is not our upbringing or the relative you couldn't stand at Thanksgiving a few days ago. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is a dragon who's been trying to undermine God and his purposes from the beginning. And that's the battle we've been brought in. Not a battle against one another or any other individual or group. We are in a battle against the dragon who wants to destroy us and every good thing that our God loves. And thankfully, we have not been left to fight on our own. As has been the case throughout this letter, Paul is not speaking here to a bunch of individuals but a group. He's not charging a bunch of lone rangers to run off and fight their own battles on their own. Gladiator who is about to enter the arena and battle this dragon one on one. He's speaking to an army that is in the fight together. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to the church. He has called us to walk together. Now he is calling us to stand together. And in an individualist culture like ours, that can get lost on us, but we need to be reminded of that today and often. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and our struggle is not fought alone. If it's true that we have been and are currently walking together, that means we also stand together. And we stand alongside one another in the armor of God. The call of this passage is not a pep talk to send us out there and try really hard. This is a passage reminding us of what God has given us and calling us to stand accordingly. This is not a passage calling us to do great things for God. It is calling us to act in light of the great things God has already done for us. We're not called to stand alone and take on blame because the victory has already been won. We live near a dragon, but he has been defeated. The resurrection of Jesus was the deciding factor in that war for all verdict is not going to change and yet the dragon although he's lost the war is still trying to win as many battles as possible along the way and yet that does not change the fact that Christ rules over all he's already won and therefore we can stand we fight from he's already won this passage calls us to stand calls us calls us to fight then tells us about the armor that God gives us for the fight and then shows us the power we have for it. So I want to start with this call to fight. We're called to be strong. We can stand against the devil and his schemes. It is true our enemy is not flesh and blood, but he is still at work and around us every day by any means necessary. Paul continues with that thought in verse 12 by saying that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You might have noticed terms there that we have heard before in this letter. And those references that we've heard before help us get an understanding of the point Paul is making in this verse. Translated rulers and authorities, they were used back in chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul said that, that Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, Every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, Jesus rules over all. That word for authorities was used in chapter 2, verse 2, 
described the life that we lived before we knew Christ when we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That language of rulers and authorities was used in chapter 3, verse 10, when Paul said that in the church, the wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers of this world. That word for heavenly realms has been used throughout the first half of this letter in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 to describe the spiritual realm of this world, the things that we can, cannot see and yet have a direct effect on the things that we can. And in all of those passages, the point is made that whoever they are, whoever these powers, these rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms, whatever they are, they are not as powerful as they claim to be. They've been defeated by the resurrection of and that is where this battle lies. It's not against fellow human beings created in the image of God who are trapped in the clutches of sin. They appear to be foes, but ultimately they are tools being used by our enemy who's already been defeated. And we cannot lose sight of that fact. We must remember where the battle lies and not get distracted because our enemy loves a distracted opponent. We're to stand the devil and his schemes as he fights against us. And to do so, we stand in the armor of God so that we can withstand the battle. We put on this armor so we are not destroyed on the day of evil, as Paul says there in verse 13, which sounds pretty dire. It could sound like a future about to happen, but at the same time, you might remember that back in chapter 5, Paul, that we, in the passage we looked at last week, Paul says to make the most of the time because the days are evil, which just kind of sounds like the day-to-day, the aches and pains of living in a broken world. So what does Paul have in mind here? Is he talking about future cataclysmic events, final judgment or something like that? Or is he just talking about the day-to-day where things don't go like I think they should do? Like, and I've spent a lot of time thinking and studying this, and my answer to that question is yes. Paul's referring to all of the above. If we're to live in a broken world where our enemy is trying to destroy God's purposes and people, we need the armor of God to deliver us those days of evil come. We need the armor of God when the tests come back positive. We need the armor of God when the bills are piling up. We need the armor of God when there's tension in our home. We need the armor of God to stand together. And we also need the armor of God if we are to make it to the end of this life that God has called us to because the days are evil. We have an enemy who seeks to destroy us. But we have a God who clothes us with his armor so we can stand alongside our brothers and sisters. I've heard sermons on this passage, and maybe you have too, that have spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not this soldier that Paul describes in these verses is in an offensive or a defensive posture. Are they on the attack, or are they trying to keep the enemy at bay? And you could maybe make the case either way, and I think that's a clue to us that that's not the point Paul is making here. It's maybe lost on us because warfare looks very different in our day than it looked in the first century. But before all else, the soldier in Paul's day was to stand. When you were locked in close combat as a unit, the worst thing that happened to your group is if one soldier dropped their weapons and ran. You might want to drop your shield, drop your sword, and take off for your own protection. But as you're doing, you're endangering all the people around you because the person next to you is counting on your shield to help protect them. And the person behind you can only do what they're supposed to do if you remain in place. 
And so above all else, the soldier is called to stand. It's not a passive posture. Paul's not calling us to loiter in this verse. He's saying to stand like when you're knee-deep in a river or the waves are crashing on you on the ocean and you're trying to maintain your balance even though the water is trying to knock you over. We have an enemy advancing against us who would love nothing more to destroy us, who would love nothing more than for one person to drop and run and expose everyone around them in the process. And instead, Paul calls us to stand. As Paul writes these words, he's in prison, he's chained to a Roman soldier, he's very familiar with their uniform. And so he uses that to proclaim how God has equipped us to fulfill this calling that he's given us so that we can stand. So starting in this armor that has given us so that we can fight. And what we find as we look at each of these articles of the soldier's uniform and what Paul says they represent, we are hearing terms we have already heard in this letter. First, Paul tells us to stand by put on, putting on the... You might remember that back in chapter 1, he told us about the truth of the Jesus that brings salvation and that because of that message of truth, we should be truthful with one another because we belong to one another. Now he says to buckle the belt of truth around our waist because it is this message of truth and our truth with one another that holds us together when we have an enemy who loves to come at us with half-truths and outright lies. He tells us to stand by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. In chapter 4, he told us that when we put on our new self in Christ, we receive God's righteousness and his holiness. In chapter 5, he told us to walk in the light because the light brings about righteousness in us. God is righteous in every way, and so if we are to stand... We need the protection of God's righteousness that then makes us righteous so that we can live and move in the world in imitation of the character of our righteous God. He tells us in verse 15 that we stand by putting on shoes that make us ready through the gospel of peace. We were told in the second half of chapter 2 that Jesus is our peace, that he's come to bring peace to those who are far away from him and those that were already near and because he has proclaimed peace, we can have peace with God and with one another, and we can proclaim peace in battle. We live at peace with one another, as we're called to do in chapter 4, because Jesus is our peace. And we proclaim that peace in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 52, verse 7, when he said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who rely on your God reigns. Isaiah said there would be messengers who would come and would proclaim peace and remind God's people that he is on his throne. Jesus has brought us peace with God and with one another, and therefore we proclaim peace to a world that needs to hear it. Paul tells us to stand in verse 16 by taking up the shield of faith, which protects the attacks of our enemy. And he says that the, the enemy comes at us with flaming arrows. And if you can imagine standing on a battlefield, an arrow coming at you is scary enough. But if it's on fire, that is a very different thing. And it's, it's terrifying in my mental image. And ancient historians tell us that archers would shoot these flaming arrows at enemies just to cause disruption as much as anything. Because if you're trying to keep the sky from hurting you, you're probably exposed to lots of other things in battle as well because you're worried about that. But if you could stand, if you could not get distracted, if you could hold your position and hold that shield in place, it would protect you from everything 
it gave you all the protection you needed from a flaming arrow. So Paul says if we are to withstand the attacks of our enemy, we need the shield of faith. Throughout this letter, Paul has shown faith is the entry point into life with our God. He said in chapter 2, we have, we have been saved by grace through faith. He, in chapter 3, he said it's through faith that we draw near to God. In chapter 4, he said we have one faith that binds us together. It is faith. Is and what he has done for us, acting in light of that belief that unites us to God and to one another, and it is what we need as we stand for the sake of Christ. In verse 17, we're told that we stand by putting on the helmet of salvation, which is a little different from all these other things Paul has mentioned because the word salvation hasn't come up all that often in this letter, but it seems. That Paul's using this image because he has Isaiah chapter 59 in mind. Isaiah in that passage describes the rebellion and the sin of God's people, all the issues that is causing God's pleasure at that. And because that is the case, Isaiah says in chapter 59 verses 16 and 17 that God saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene so his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. When God's people are helpless, Isaiah says that God himself will show up and save his people from their sin. And one of the things he brings with him when he does so is a helmet of salvation. That God has given us a helmet of of salvation. God has given us a bit of his armor. It's God's armor, just like the rest of this is, but he is giving it to his people so that we can participate in this fight. God's not sending us out on our own. He's given us everything we need so that we can stand. Being clothed with God's armor brings power and authority. When you're reading through the story of the Old Testament where someone's clothing gets passed on and there tends to be something powerful being communicated in that moment. In the midst of the story of David and Goliath, King Saul at one point tries to help David out before he goes into battle against the giant Goliath by offering to put the royal armor on him. And David ultimately doesn't accept it, but it's this ironic moment where the current king of Israel unwittingly puts the royal armor on the one who will take the throne from him. What follows from that story, David demonstrates why he is worthy to be king over Israel, and Saul not. Later in the story, the prophet Elijah is sent by God to call Elisha to be a prophet to succeed him as the one who speaks truth to God's people. And the text tells us that Elijah comes along Elisha as he is plowing a for his father and as he does so Elijah just comes up behind him and puts his mantle over him he doesn't say a word but he communicates something powerful with that transfer of clothing to say that God is calling you to follow in my footsteps putting on someone else's clothing is not like a that are too big for them it's communicating that the person is taking on the identity and the purpose of the person whose clothing they are putting on. And Paul's saying something similar when he tells us to put on God's helmet of salvation. We are called to stand to proclaim God's salvation to a world that needs saving. And as we 
and we do so with the Spirit, which is God's Word. We've heard a lot about God's Spirit throughout this book. In chapter 1, God gives His Holy Spirit as a down payment of the life with Him that will one day come in full, and that Paul is praying that He would give the Ephesians His Spirit more and more. At the end of chapter 2, we're told that we can come into the presence of God through His Spirit, that God builds us up as His people through His Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, Paul said it's through God's Spirit that this mystery of God's purposes have been made known, and Paul prays that God would strengthen His people through His Spirit. In chapter 4, we're unified with one another through God's Spirit because there is one Spirit God has given us. We were told not to grieve God's Spirit through rejecting His call. Chapter 5, we were told not to get drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit. Throughout this letter, the Holy Spirit has been the way God makes Himself known and draws us into His purposes. Now, as we are being called to stand, we are told that the Word of God is the means through which the Holy Spirit does the things we have heard the Holy Spirit doing throughout this letter. God's Word is proclaimed through His Scripture. But the, the specific word used there is both spoken and written words need the Word of God through reading the Bible on our own, although we should read the Bible on our own. The Word of God is in our life together, in worship and at all times, so that we can be equipped to fulfill God's purposes. God has called us to stand, and has provided us with everything we need to be able to do so. We have everything we need in Christ to complete this calling. Calling for individual self-help programs. God is calling us into the life he desires for us alongside others who are doing the same in the midst of the fight every protecting one another as we are empowered by God to stand. In the last section of this passage we are told of the power that enables us to stand. Because Paul's not calling us to throw on this armor and run out there by our own might and try to win victory on our own. He, re- he reminds us of the power that enables us to stand, and that power is prayer. W- which I don't know about you, but that might seem a little anticlimactic. Because it seems like we typically think of prayer as a last resort. It seems like if we're at a loss for what to do, if we can't come up with any better ideas, we say, well, I guess I'll just pray for them. Maybe I'm just revealing too much about myself, but it seems like prayer tends to be the thing we do until we come up with something else that we think is more useful. Yet Paul says prayer is our best weapon. And if we continue with this metaphor of putting on the armor of God and standing alongside one another in battle, prayer seems to be the supply line that makes all that work possible. An army on the front lines can look as menacing as they want to look. They can be the most intimidating group of people you have ever seen. But if they don't have people behind them bringing them food and supplies, they're going to be in trouble pretty quickly. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is not what to do if you don't have any better ideas. Prayer is not what we're required to do before we can get on to the real business. Prayer is what covers and supports everything we do as we stand. And up to this point, this passage has seemed pretty triumphant, almost like a pregame speech from a coach. And we might expect things to end with a rousing call to go out there and get them or something like that. But Paul makes a turn. He's asked in verse 19 that, that the Ephesians would pray for him. To pray that he would proclaim the message as he should. 
because he is an ambassador in That wouldn't seem to be the direction we should go. He's told the Ephesians what they're supposed to do and how God will empower them to do it and that they should pray that God would make all this happen. And then he asks that they would pray for him. One last reminder that he writes these words from a prison cell. And that would seem to undercut this passage. I mean, when the person motivating you is in a prison cell and telling you to follow their example, that would seem to not be a very motivating example to want to follow. It seems less appealing to stand for a cause after Paul says he is an ambassador for that cause and it has landed him in chains. Because the ancient world had ambassadors just like our world does to maintain relationships between nations and groups of people. And you can imagine that if one nation took an ambassador from another nation and threw them in prison, it would cause quite a scene. And the same would be was true in Paul's day. If an ambassador has been thrown into prison by a nation, that probably means that either the ambassador or the country that the ambassador comes from is not very powerful, or the ambassador is not a faithful representative of that country. If an ambassador is in prison, there must be something wrong with the ambassador or the or the people that sent them. And yet, Paul doesn't see things this way. He asks for prayer that he would fearlessly proclaim the gospel. He says the one who has to deliver this letter because Paul can't. We'll fill them in on the details and we'll encourage them. He prays a blessing over them. And these would not appear to be the normal words of someone sitting in a prison cell. I mean, he doesn't ask for anything. He, he doesn't say, get a lawyer. He doesn't say, come visit me. He simply asks that he would preach the message of Jesus fearlessly. The message of Jesus is what landed him in this situation to begin with, and yet he seems undeterred. So is Paul delusional? How are we supposed to go into battle calling us to stand sitting in a prison cell because he stood? Does Paul know something we don't? Well, I think Paul's situation shows us what this battle's really about. Because we're not being called to go conquer. The battle we're being called to stand in is where we love our enemies. It's one where we conquer our foes by making them our brothers and sisters. It's where the peace of God is established through the proclamation of the message of Jesus, the one who died and rose again to be our peace. We stand in love and service because we've submitted to Jesus. It might not sound like sound military strategy, but that's the stand that our Savior has taken and the one he calls us to take as well. Paul might look very as he sits in a prison cell he might look just as victorious as Jesus did as he hung on the cross but Jesus' story did not end with his death Paul's story will not end with being executed as an enemy of the Roman Empire and whatever our story might include as we stand good, bad, or otherwise it will not end with defeat because Jesus' story involves resurrection that means ours will as well so even if our story includes suffering, as it did for Jesus and Paul, victory, as it is done for our Savior. And so we can stand together. We stand because Christ has defeated death and is giving us everything we need to participate. We stand because Christ is seated victorious at the right hand of God. We stand because Christ has brought us out of death and into life and is calling us to walk in life with him. 
We stand because Christ has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We stand because Christ has won the victory over sin and death. When we stand, it is a glorious thing. In Paul's day, as Paul writes these words, a Roman legion, a Roman military operation was the most unstoppable military force the world had ever seen up to that point. And so I think it's an accident that Paul takes that image and says that's what the church is called to be. When we read this passage with the rest of this letter, when we do what it says and stand together, we get a glimpse at what we can be as God's people. We don't advance whoever we've decided are the enemies this week so we can stand on their throats. We stand in love and service together. We show the love of Christ that has come to bring peace. We stand as God's people as advanced troops announcing that our king is on his way to make his victory complete as we practice resurrection in our life together. When we do that, we conquer through love and service what Jesus has commanded us to do. Jesus was serious when he said the gates of hell would not prevail against his people. And that becomes a reality when we stand together. And we're able to do that because of the truths we have already sung about today and the ones we'll be celebrating over the next few Because Jesus has come into this world, Save us from sin and death and bring us into life with him. We can stand because Jesus was born. And the fact that the Son of God came to earth as a human being is life transforming. And so, starting next Sunday, going for the next four weeks, we're going to be reflecting on all that that means by looking at another passage of Scripture by Paul in the letter of Philippians about the significance Jesus coming to this earth and what it means for us as we celebrate this mystery of Christmas and all that it means. So I hope you will join us as we do that, so as we reflect on who Jesus is and what he's come to bring us so that we can stand as his people. We stand, we fight, in the power of the victory Christ has already won for us. So may we do that together. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We praise you for the victory that you've won in Christ Jesus, for the life that we have because of your son. So God, for those of us that have already committed to life, desiring to walk with you and in life with one another each and every day, God, we ask for your power to help us stand. We ask that you would strengthen us, embolden us, empower us to stand alongside one another, to follow where you lead so that you may God, for those of us who may have decisions to make, whatever that looks like, sin to repent of, a commitment to follow you for the first time, God, help us um, to join the fight, to step in as you've called us to do, to not walk away, run, but to remain faithful, to stand as we fight from the victory that you've already won for us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 